happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 104. It happens to be the, I don't know the date today, the 22nd of August, 2018. You can tell a couple of techie guys have been working to get schools up and running uh, based on what the next hour or so is going to look like. But my name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy the state virtual school located in fabulous Missoula, Montana, but that is not where I'm joining you from tonight. I am in fabulous Whitefish, Montana, which is a beautiful town about an hour south of Canadian border in the northwest part of beautiful Montana. And although it's a touch smoky here tonight, all of the same Missoula, uh, it is beautiful August night here in Whitefish. And joining me as always, Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you doing this evening? Well, I am well, especially since all our school seesaw imports are done and the teachers have everything they need. And I was telling Jason before the show, if I was not very passionate about seesaw, it's not to say teachers wouldn't be using it, but I don't know if we would be using seesaw for schools. And it's phenomenal. Um, it's just a bit more time consuming than I have the personal bandwidth to do during my regular work day. So anyway, I'm happy to join from Oklahoma City, and I decided my hair was looking a little too wild, so I had to put on a hat tonight. But you were really on quite the the tour, and so Kalispell it's it's a hot place to be, or you know, popular place to be in the summertime. I mean, if uh, what did you say, three hundred thirty dollars was the cheapest hotel room you guys could find open? Yep, and that's why we end up staying in Whitefish, is that uh, we're you know a state institution, so we have to search out for state rate uh, institutions, and they tend to go away pretty quickly during tourist season, but Kalispell, Whitefish, Columbia Falls, uh, Eureka uh, in far northwestern Montana, they're very popular in the summertime with tourists, partially because of their proximity to Glacier National Park, and so Glacier is about an hour or so from here, and so beautiful towns, um, uh, uh, in this area, but yeah, it's, it, it is very, um, very tourist infrastructure driven. So we have that, uh, going for us, but it's super beautiful. And, um, I sometimes forget this because I do spend a lot of the time in my job sitting in an office on, don't get me wrong, the beautiful University of Montana campus, but I live in this amazing state. And one of the greatest things I get to do as, as living in this amazing state is travel, um, uh, to different locations. And in fact, something that, uh, Wes, I think I may briefly mention, but I'm going to be doing a, a long two, two week tour in far northeastern Montana, which, um, to give you a sense of this, sometimes uh, when we talk about the sheer size of Montana, people don't really get how big our state is, but I'm located in Missoula, which is in western Montana. It's about an hour and a half away from the Montana Idaho border. If I head west from Missoula and drive eight hours, I end up in Seattle, Washington, right? That's a coastal town. If I go east from Missoula and drive eight hours, I'm not even close to the border. It would take you another hour and a half, two hours to get to the Montana-North Dakota border. And obviously, it's not a straight shot. You have to take the interstate as it it, it lays out. But um, it's a big state. And so I'm really excited about the opportunity to go with uh, one of my Great colleagues of the Digital Academy, Mike Gustinelli, we're going to be doing 27 schools in 10 days in, in northeastern Montana. So, uh, and again, just such a beautiful state I get to live in. So I'm a pretty lucky guy. You are. And a shout out to our to our chat room. And if you're joining us live, uh, please do join in our chat in the YouTube chat. Peggy George, born in Kalispell, Montana. And she has a cousin who is a current radio announcer in Whitefish. So... 
Maybe we'll find out who that is, and you can tune in to the local Whitefish. Uh, she didn't say AM or FM. Oh, there you go. KGEZ Radio's executive producer. So, wow. Yeah. Well, as I like to say, Montana's a big, small town. So it's, uh, I've literally been in, in, uh, uh, foreign countries, right? The first time it ever happened to me, I was sitting in a cafe in Paris and someone next to me heard that we were Americans and they happened to be someone that, that, uh, had family in Montana and we knew their family. So Montana is kind of a big, small town here. We're all kind of connected in some way, shape or form. Well, and this, you know, we are going to talk tech, by the way. That is what we do on this show. But <laughs> I've got to have a little aside. Have you read or do you know of the book, The Immortal Irishman, the Irish revolutionary hero, revolutionary who became an American hero by Timothy Egan? Do you know about this I book? I have not read or heard of this book. All right. Well, this was uh, at, the, at the end of his life. Um, it's the story of um, of. Uh, well, gosh, I'm not even going to be able to. Yeah. Thomas Meager. Um, who uh, basically led a very um, poorly designed and ill-fated uh, attempt at independence in Ireland r- during the potato famine, was banished to Tasmania, um, ended up escaping the island, come, came to the United States, was famous, led the Irish Brigade in the Civil War, uh, knew Lincoln personally and was a general, but his last season of life was as uh, acting governor of Montana. And there is a statue of him in um, uh, Helena. And it is just is a fascinating tale. And, you know, help me learn a little bit more about the early season of Montana history with all of the various sundry characters that were there and the vigilantes. And it was actually... Um, killed by someone, well, it's believed, and Egan paints the picture, uh, some, somebody who worked with the newspaper, because there was a lot of vigilante groups that made, made life pretty rough there in the early days, and he was taking a stand. So anyway, there you go. Maybe that's my, when, when is your birthday coming up, Jason? Uh, October 16th. There you go. So maybe I've got my, my birthday gift for you. But we're not going to have to just digress the whole time, I guess. Right. I, I, I will digress one more time, just, just uh, <laughs> speaking of Montana. In Helena, each May... There is a parade. It's an all-school parade, so both the high schools uh, engage in the parade. It's the Vigilante Parade um, made every year in, in fabulous uh, Helena, Montana. So, yeah, the, the long tradition of Montana. And, of course, we chose to highlight the Vigilantes as a, as a historical character. But, yeah, lots of uh, pretty uh, stunning and, and, and amazing uh, history in, in Big Sky Country. So. All right. Wow. Well, there you go. Your little dive into something completely non-technical from the tech geeks this evening. Well, Jason, I know you've been on the road, um, and we've got a few articles we're carrying forward, actually, from uh, last week. And perhaps we could start with the platforms are not publishers, because unlike last week, I have actually read that article and uh, am prepared to discuss it at a little more length. So, does that sound good, or where would you like to Yeah, that's great. Start Let's from? start there. And what were your impressions of uh, Mr. Jarvis's information? So this is I, – I really do like the pieces in the Atlantic usually. And um, what Jarvis is saying essentially is that – Let's not pretend we fully understand and can comprehend what the Internet is doing to journalism, to our society. You know, we're still debating about the printing press and the, you know, full effect there. And um, his points, I mean, he makes several different clear points. Um, But, uh, you know, looking at the evolution of of the Internet in context, 
how we've got a lot of really great amplification of important voices and, and marginalized voices that, you know, have been able to come forward from Black Lives Matter to the Me Too movement, the Parkland students. I mean, there's <clears throat> a lot of examples of that. Um, that really bad actors and human behavior is what the issue is. And, and there's a few other links relating to fake news and, and, and that kind of thing here in the, uh, in the show notes for tonight. Um, but then, you know, talking about how, um, really it's up to us to reinvent, uh, journalism, you know, media and platforms and just the whole idea that don't mistake, uh, you know, Twitter or Facebook or Google or any of these companies. Uh, for a publisher who is focused on producing content and churning that out as a product versus someone who is facilitating conversation and is, you know, providing this medium for inter interchange and, and, and exchange of ideas. So I think it's just really insightful. And, you know, I think it's, I read it and I'm humbled because of this exhortation to say, hey, we don't even have, you know, the, the whole impact of, of the printing press and, and television and broadcast media figured out, why on earth would we have something as, as new as the, uh, the interactive web figured out in terms of the impact that it's going to have on society? And it is challenge, and this is to be a great thing to pass along to students too, that, you know, it's, it's up to us to really define this and to help shape this. So I right. found it to be a very thought-provoking piece. Right. Well, and so for those of you unaware of Jeff Jarvis, the author of the article, he is a professor of, I, at one point, was like entrepreneurial journalism at the City University of New York and their graduate program. And he's a very insightful guy. He is also the co-host of the This Week in Google podcast on the Twit Network on on days. And even though it, the podcast tends to, uh, you know, venture into a lot of things way beyond Google, uh, tuning in for Jeff Jarvis alone, uh, is, is worthy for it every week. And I don't get to it each week because, um, you know, the sheer, you know, thousand hours of, of podcasts that, that I'm catching in, in any, any given week. But, um, he really does have an interesting perspective in that he gets that, you know, that the internet and maybe bad decisions made on behalf of journalism in the early days of the internet did lead us down a pathway that killed a lot of our traditional news structures and news coverages. But I, I believe him to be correct that they're not replaced by Facebook, Twitter and other platforms. But also we have an obligation now to figure out a way to reinvent these pieces in light of the new media architecture. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the reasons why fake news has been a real problem in 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 the the journalism world the fact that um you know uh uh maybe unsavory characters have uh, adopted kind of a, a a facade of journalism i'm thinking here of uh the infowars folks and, and and the stuff they do i mean you know empowering for some is really empowering for all on the internet right anyone can have a channel in fact i was having a great conversation with uh, my cohort, Mike, from the Digital Academy um, uh, on the way up to Kalispell today. And uh, we were talking about, and, and I think I've mentioned a couple of these in, in past episodes. I've been really digging um, on some interesting new YouTube channels. And you know, it's nothing stunning, but there's a really great guy. It's a retired dude in Jersey. He's, he, he, I believe that his... Uh, um, I, I believe that his uh, moniker is Scout Crafter on YouTube. And this is a guy that, that has, is an extraordinarily talented guy with his hands, but 
he refurbishes old tools. Like that's what his channel is about. He takes hundred year old pliers and wrenches and, and tools that he buys at flea markets and he refurbishes them to their original spec and then ends up adding like a nice coat of paint to them and, and making them look like they looked when they were first released a hundred years ago. I'm not really, well, actually I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a gearhead. I'm not really a tool guy, but I'm a gearhead. I love this channel, right? That guy has been empowered to touch tens of thousands of people with this very specific piece of knowledge that also opens up the platform to perhaps unsavory characters that some, many, maybe all of society decides is not you know worthy of, of a journalism channel, but that's not the way new media works. It's really empowering in that way. So I tend to agree Mr. Jarvis. And in fact, I also think this is what, Wes, you've been preaching for 15 years. It's something I've been talking quite a bit about. That's why we need to, to hand this power on to our students and say, you have to seize the productive piece of this. You have to help recreate journalism. You need to help find ways to do this. Now, I'm under no illusion that we can do this without money, right? I think that's part of the problem right now is there's not enough money in formal news and journalism at this point. We have to figure that piece out. But make no mistake, we have to invent the future where a, um, a, a, a fourth estate that is well-funded, well-thought-through, and accessible by all is part of the way we do our culture. And so, um, yeah, I, I find that notion very empowering, even though the challenge is great. Well-spoken as potentially a future gubernatorial candidate in the state of Montana and perhaps a political nominee for the FCC chair. Um, <laughs> what is... What is Jeff Jarvis's podcast that you referenced that you're trying to catch? Uh, this Week in Google. Oh, it's This Week in Google. Quit, okay, yeah. Good. yeah. And he's the awesome. co-host of that. I'm a little sad because it used to have Gina Trapani of uh, Lifehacker fame. Uh, she used to be a co-host on there, and now she's a, a, a mostly a full-time coder uh, for a group in New York. And I love those three together. Then they, they have folks now that are fine, too, but... Um, the, uh, Leo Laporte, Jeff Jarvis, and Gene Trapani together were a very powerful trio, but, um, really, really great stuff. I'm actually already subscribed in my hundred plus feeds, but, but that hasn't been, uh, a frequent one. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna download and start enjoying. So, hey, and this is part of the media landscape that I think we all need to embrace and increasingly, um, Oh, actually, I'll put that in the, as a as a geek of the week. But you know, podcasting, the Renaissance, being able to narrowcast and not only publish and produce, but you know, receive and filter information. And that's one of the, the reasons I enjoy listening to podcasts so much, is they you know spark my interest. And I don't remember if it was some. Well, now it was just because of the author that I found that immortal Irishman. But I'm sometimes finding books, audio books, uh, videos. You know, we. We filter the web ourselves, and as we are sharers of the nuggets that we find when we are, are uh, perusing and, and consuming, you know, that whole process is something that I think we need a lot more folks to participate in actively versus being the consumers and the sheep of the, the Neil Postman broadcast journalism right. world. So, yep. Well, and remember, everyone, you know, two dudes that met basically on the Internet like we have a podcast, right? And we, we, uh, you know, we're not, we're not posting NPR numbers or anything, but you know, we're obviously doing this, you know, a lot for ourselves, right? We like to process this information every week and we hope you find value in listening to the program as well. But you know, it's not taking a ton 
of time and resources for us to get together once a week and chat. And a little secret for our listeners, uh, Wes does the heavy lifting on processing, uh, post-processing of, of, of the, the podcast. I can just show up and ramble on and, and do my part, right? But the, the honest answer is that you know, this is not something that old media would really have allowed for, right? Like I think of it in terms of like community access television, uh, which by the way, is still alive and well in, in uh, most cities, right? You can still see talk shows that are broadcast on air and now are usually archived digitally. Like that's obviously a part of this, but you know, the, the long tail stuff, which we talk about fairly frequently on the show, there's an audience enough to make it worth for us to do this for once a week, uh, you know, to briefly uh, grace your headphones. And I think that's that there's something very romantic in that. But also we have to make sure that, that we accompany that with well thought through, uh, uh, you know, pushes in the right direction here. And, and again, I, you know, I hate to say this, but, you know, children are our future teach them well, let them lead the way. I think it, there, that's been no more true than, than in the way these technologies, I think, are impacting industries, critical industries like journalism. Amen. Absolutely. Preach on, Brother Neifer. So where should we uh, go next? We've got some articles about fake news. We've got a great foreign affairs article on China, uh, Musk drama. What looks good to you? Um, actually, I'm going to uh, talk about a quick thing here, and I, I, I don't have a link for this, uh, but I read this last night. There are rumors going around that, and let's call this this, re- this week in Apple hand-wringing, there are rumors going around that the good folks at Apple are working on a MacBook Air refresh, and this is the one that's more interesting to me, a Mac Mini refresh. And the Mac Mini, which has not been updated since 2013, in my mind, is one of the saddest uh, losses uh, that we've had out of the Apple lineup. Uh, the Mac Pro, obviously, is something that, that Apple promises they're going to work on, something to release for, for pro users. But the Mac Mini was the way I actually got started in... Um, in using a, a Mac, um, I had been a, a, a Windows user for the longest time, and in the late 2000s, um, I decided to, uh, there was a, a, a quick sale before uh, Apple turned around new versions of the Mac Mini, and I bought a, a, core, a core 2 Duo Mac Mini with 4 gigs of RAM in it, and got started in that environment, and it was an amazing transformation to me to learn about that particular operating system, and eventually led me to buying a Mac laptop. But it is such a great school machine because you can buy with whatever monitors you have sitting around in your school. And my guess is if you're in Montana, you can get 22-inch flat panel monitors now from the state as surplus for free. So you can uh, provide that expensive piece, right? But if you are uh, you know, looking to put some powerful Macs in the hands of students for creation purposes, the Mac Mini was a wonderful choice. It was uh, usually somewhere between $600 and $800, depending on your configuration. And um, it was pretty hardy and stable. And one of the things I love about the Apple platform is that it usually could be trusted to, to be pretty speedy for five or six releases of new operating systems and still be quite functional. And so I'm excited that there seems to be some attempt to bring back the greatest hits in the, in the Mac lineup. And, of course, the MacBook Air, which looked all but dead when new Mac Pro or MacBook Pros were released uh, uh, earlier this year and last year, it's great to hear there might be some life in those platforms. So, Wes, as an IT director, does that bring any temptation to you to uh, maybe outfit a future lab if those two items are suddenly a, a reality again? 
Well, I don't know about a lab. I kind of think labs are are passing the way the dinosaur and we're going more mobile carts, but uh, we are about 95% Mac laptop. So uh, I've definitely been been pushing and I think we'll be able to get us to wait till I've, I think September is going to be an iPhone event is, is what I'm hearing. I was, I was listening yep. to Twit and then in October, uh, I'm hearing, you know, for that refresh. So we use Mac minis in several of our conference and meeting rooms, yes. being able to have a wireless keyboard and just, you know, have that available. And so I don't know. We'll weigh it. Popping a, a solid state drive in an older Mac like that actually breathes some remarkable life into it. And so, um, that would be a less expensive route to, you know, be a little speedier, but I'm uh, definitely looking forward to seeing what they're going to do with their laptops and said this probably almost on every show, you know, will they put a hinge on the laptop? Will they make the screen touch? Will they do some kind of an, an, an iPad uh, laptop hybrid? Uh, I'm hungry for Apple to innovate in that laptop space. It, it does seem that they're very dominant in the space. I mean, every, almost every you know, parent that I talk to about their kid going to college and some even in high school, you know, well, they just want a MacBook. Well, of course they want a MacBook. Everyone wants a MacBook, although, you know, there's folks that want the Surface and other things. So I, I think it's going to be uh, exciting to see what they what they do. And it would be particularly exciting if the price point um, gets more favorable for education. We saw Apple do that with the latest sixth generation iPads. In fact, it might have happened with the fifth where it went down to three hundred dollars educationally. So we will see, but they, I think that we're just as Microsoft, I was in the, the Microsoft store <clears throat> last week because we've got a, a new communications director who wanted a, a Surface Pro. And anyway, they had just, I guess, had an event for the Windows S devices. I haven't had a chance to play with it, but this is the closest to Chromebook in pricing and functionality that Microsoft has come up with. It's a, you've got to get everything from the store. You can't just download, you know, software, but it's Microsoft's response on a hardware level to the Chromebook. And so I think that Apple has not had the, I mean, the iPad is, is a fantastic tool and there are certainly a number of schools out there that have embraced it. Um, more actually from some of my friends in Maine as, the, as, as their one to one has, you know, gone. It, it really seemed that Apple was, was thinking that everyone was going to go iPad and, and drop the laptop. Well, a lot of schools, some schools, you know, didn't want to do that and they saw that as a reduction in capability. So anyway, it's going to be an interesting landscape. I would also foresee perhaps, you know, down the road, um, where we haven't given teachers a choice, uh, as far as like you, you just get a laptop, you know, maybe, maybe they do want an iPad, but if there's something that's more of a hybrid, then that'll be exciting. I think thin is going to be very exciting. I just helped one of our coaches actually decide, um, to get a Kindle, uh, paperwhite instead of an iPad because he was most interested in reading. And I said, I just love, it's kind of a shared Kindle between my daughter and I, but you know, the weight factor and just how, how light it is. So are you ready for a new daily driver? You were going to do something crazy, weren't you? Like just use your phone for a month or something or? <laughs> it wasn't a, <laughs> that's funny you should say that. It wasn't a month. It was a day. I'm, I, I've done some testing on it. And part of it is that I want to make sure that, uh, I have some contingencies to do that. And, and I'm, I, I will tell you, for example, that, uh, I am using an Android phone that, uh, has a video out on it uh, via a USB-C uh, port. And what's great about that is I, I have a couple of USB-C docks now because I'm my, my daily driver is actually a, a Chrome a Chrome Pixelbook and it's it's amazing. And I 
I, in fact, I'm so confident about it. Like I even drove myself in my own car to Whitefish and usually I would bring a second computer when I can do that just because I'm that guy. I'm just bringing the Chromebook. In fact, because I'm tempting fate, I'm bringing the Chromebook in the developer channel. So I'm not even like running the stable version of the software. I'm running two versions ahead because I, I like the updating changes in the interface, but, um, yeah, I just I, I want Apple to continue to innovate here, and I feel like that they, you know, they got uh, lazy is not the right word. I just feel like they lack the editing that happened under the, from my understanding, fairly terse Steve Job era, right? Like the reason why he was successful in some ways was, uh, you know, he was able to, you know, tell people that ideas were stupid, and that's not always the way you want to run a positive business. But uh, uh, at the same time, it meant that the devices that were released into our hands were usually very, very aggressively edited, and that's been to their benefit. So, you know, cheers to Apple. Um, I hope they can regain that glory. Yeah. Well, I'd like to talk about this uh, foreign affairs article, but before that, just really quick, um, some articles actually from last week. Relating to Elon Musk, and the connection here is in terms of social media, digital citizenship, and of course Musk is in the center of all kinds of, of technology news and, and, you know, trying to revolutionize the world with, with batteries and solar power and, you know, space travel to Mars and all kinds of stuff. But, uh, Recode's August 13th article in the Tesla drama, Saudi Arabia reminds Silicon Valley of his, of its weight, uh, references this situation where uh, Elon Musk uh, tweeted that uh, he was going to or is going to take Tesla public at $240 a share and that he uh, has that secured. And so later that week, he ended up publishing a blog post that clarified that. And apparently he has been approached by Saudi Arabian investors um, who have the foresight to know that, you know, oil is not going to rule the world forever and they need to diversify their economy, et cetera, et cetera, and want to make a heavy private investment in Tesla. Um, there's another article from Ars Technica on August 15th. A huge outlier Musk's Tesla buyout tweet could get him in legal trouble. I think I'm going to do a, a digital set on our DigSit website. and I've not put anything new on it um, for a while since the spring. Uh, this is a great one to talk with students about in terms of, you know, what do you want to tweet? What do you not want to tweet? Um, you know, how how can you really get yourself in trouble? Obviously, not many of us are going to be the CEO of, you know, two or three different multi-million dollar, you know, companies. Um, but there are limits to what you can say in all kinds of ways. And one of them is, you know, you can't, uh, you know, intentionally, I think, shift your stock price and, you know, tweet something like, hey, we're going to go public at this price. Um, you know, it's there, there are limits and boundaries and Musk is kind of living uh, out loud probably more than than he should uh, for his own sake. And he's probably going to face a fine uh, from the from the federal government for that tweet. I mean, we live in really interesting times, right, with with our chief executive in the United States, you know, adopting Twitter as his primary megaphone to communicate with everyone. Um, and then also what we see happening with, with Musk. So have you dumped all of your, um, you know, thousands of Tesla stock shares as a result of this recent news, Jason? <laughs> oh, I, I am not invested, uh, uh, in, in Tesla, unfortunately or fortunately in how you look at it. But I mean, I, I think that this is something that's, that's really interesting. I, I know just enough about col uh, corporate history that, um, uh, American corporate history, that the thing that is very interesting to me about 2018 is that a lot of startup 
um, and this is due to social media, but a lot of startup CEOs and founders, that's become more of a celebrity culture than I would have uh, generally expected otherwise. And, you know, the, uh, obviously Mark Zuckerberg is, is kind of the king leader of this. The, his story was so interesting that it turned into a very successful book and ultimately a movie. Um, and, uh, that I think is, is kind of a testament to where we are here in 2018. But that at the same time, um, you know, in the same way that uh, a grand microphone is perhaps less than a successful strategy for our current commander in chief, I don't think a grand microphone has been a very successful strategy for Mr. Musk either. And his company is really pulling off Herculean efforts to try to expand capacity and really push an industry that it could probably use a, a little bit of push and adaptation. So um, interesting to watch. Um, I am glad that I don't rely on any part of that industry uh, for, for critical parts of my daily life. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'd like to, to talk now about a pretty amazing article, you know, foreign affairs for those of us who, you know, love political science and uh, are, are uh, in, in, I mean, certainly in the, the debate world in terms of, uh, prescriptions for, you know, what is, what's happening in just geopolitics. I mean, it's, it's kind of the gold standard and they have a wonderful article and a shout out to the, the twit podcast and Leo Laporte for mentioning this in their latest show. Uh, the article is called when China rules the web and it's from the September, October, uh, edition of foreign affairs. And also shout out to foreign affairs for not having this behind a paywall too. Right. I mean, that, uh, this is at, uh, Adam Seagull, and he is very much worth following on uh, Twitter. Um, that's one of the things, actually, as, as a technique now, usually when I share an article, I'll not only put the publisher, but I'll also put the author, just kind of giving him a shout out as far as, hey, I'm reading your article. And, and it's pretty cool to engage because, you know, so, sometimes I'll retweet or, or, you know, even comment back. So uh, Adam on uh, Twitter is A ADS China. But here's the, the brief summary. Um, you know, China is the ascendant country in many ways in the world. Um, but as Adam said, it's, it's not, def, you know, a foregone conclusion. But in terms of where things are going demographically, economically, um, actually, the segue is a bit with a Twit podcast I referenced a week or so ago with Amy Webb, where they talked a lot about how Europe and especially China are able to play a much uh, longer game with regard to politics and investment than the United States is governmentally and, and even our companies. But but some of the most pr provocative and thought provoking and just thought provoking ideas that are posed in this article is that China uh, really wants to not just be kind of the neo-colonial you know, labor force, uh, for, for Silicon Valley and for American innovation, but they are making huge, huge investments into AI and into, uh, technology. Um, the most, this is the most shocking thing. And I don't know if this is news to you or not, Jason, but, um, we've, we heard about Huawei and the, the U S government at some point, didn't we have a ban on Huawei devices or we were going to try to block them and then right. Trump, Trump reversed that. Right. Um, yeah. And I believe that was like, uh, like CIA, NSA kind of, uh, actions too, because they were feared that with their national security threats. Yeah. Well, listen to this. Cause I, I had no idea, um, that it, this extended so far. Chinese technology firms have become the targets of political pressure in Australia, the United States and Europe. 
The Australian government is considering banning Huawei from supplying equipment for Australia's fifth generation mobile networks, 5G. Washington is working to limit Chinese investment in U.S. technology companies and has made it more difficult for Chinese telecommunications firms to do business in the United States. It has blocked China Mobile's application to provide telecommunication services in the United States, banned the sale of Huawei and ZTE smartphones on U.S. military bases, and sought to prohibit U.S. telecommunications companies from spending critical infrastructure funds on equipment and services from China. And part of this is when China has the technology, you know, they can bake in surveillance technology where they're going to bring that data back to them. I don't think we have it in the show notes, but there was some hoopla this last week or so about Google and Android devices and how even if you were trying to not have your location, you know, tracked, it was, it was still doing that. Well, think, you know, Chinese government owning your phone and then being able to control the data. So that was really news to me. But then also uh, the, the bigger picture is, you know, how the United States and really led by, by business and the private industry has promoted this vision and not just a vision, a reality of the Internet where it's very, um, you know, uh, I wanted to say disaggregated. Um, it's, it's not centralized. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, sm- smart, smart on the edge. It's, it's the, the foundation of the Web. And so. What China is trying to promote is more centralized control and in the name of multilateralism. So, hey, let's multilaterally, you know, have nation states control this. There are quite a number of small nations very interested in controlling the web in censoring, you know, what's happening. And so uh, Seagal is saying in this article that the United States is really struggling to promote essentially the the this er, the original values of the web, which involve end to end design and, you know, allowing for the free flow of information. And, and China, in the name of multilateralism, is, is basically trying to impose a nation state structure and say, let nation states be the ones who decide what happens. But that can end up in having a very fractured Internet. We see this already with um, data privacy laws where some co- some countries are trying to push and say, you have to store data on servers in our country. Well, that kind of defeats the whole idea of a global you know Internet and a global network if, you know, every country, whether you are the size of Rhode Island or the size of, of Montana or, or the or, or China or the USSR or I almost said that Russia that country doesn't officially exist anymore anyway um, it's it just this is really really fascinating so are are you uh, were you aware of that stuff as far as Huawei and what, what what's your take on all this uh, I don't think many people are really aware of a lot of that stuff that's going on uh, I'm aware of it to the extent of that it was, it's been talked a lot about in context of, uh, actions taken against Chinese tech companies in, in the recent months financially, right? But I think there's an important thing to remember is that the internet is built to not be controlled, right? And so the, the, de facto nature of that is that it's easy to then take a part of it and control that, right? There are a lot of places on earth um, and we don't hear about this a lot in the United States, but think of during the Arab springtime when, um, and, I, I, and I, please excuse me if I end up blaming the wrong country for this, but there were countries like Turkey that turned off Twitter for a small amount of time and Iran uh, turned off uh, particular social media properties during the time. And there's a lot of effort around finding federated or, or disaggregated uh, social networks during that time period to try to get around 
formal blocking of pieces. But, you know, I, I think that this is part of the conversation that doesn't happen when we're worried about the content on the internet and not the structure of the internet, right? Um, this also goes back to, I think it hooks well into the net neutrality debate too, in that, um, you know, it, there may be political reasons behind this in China, but remember, we have financial reasons why we're also, the rules are, I mean, admittedly different, right? Uh, that the people are proposing or, or efforts that they're putting in place, but that doesn't mean that there isn't real implication to them um, uh, uh, that, that might lead to the same end game, which is the, the free and open internet that we all cherish and really rely upon for these technologies built upon is really at risk during this. And so, yeah, this is an extremely interesting article. And um, it, it also, uh, remember, most of the equipment that we utilize to put the internet on is made in China too, right? Like that's a piece that, that I, I think has to be at least considered and, and thought through as part of this process. But yeah, this is an extreme, extremely fascinating take on this. Another thing that's been in the news, I don't think we have an article about, but, you know, well, no, I do, actually. China, uh, Google has been out of, of China for a while and is looking to re-engage, and Apple as well. In the article, it mentions this conference that uh, China is sponsoring each year, and Tim Cook um, and also of Apple and then Sundar Pichai of Google both attending in 2017. It's called the World Internet Conference held annually in Wuzhen. W-U-Z-H-E-N. Um, and in the article, it, it says, Cook, a vocal defender of privacy and free speech at home, stated he sh that Apple shared China's vision for, quote, developing a digital economy for openness and shared benefits by echoing Chinese officials' language on openness despite the tight controls on the Internet in China. Cook was signaling Apple's willingness to play by Beijing's rules. So, the degree to which Silicon Valley is advocating for, um, I think, what we would legitimately, you know, um, proclaim as, as U.S. values, American values in terms of openness and freedom of expression uh, and those kinds of things uh, appear to be taking a back seat to, you know, profit and the size of the, of the market Etc. So there's a Google article that, that I have in the notes as well. This is Business Insider on August the 16th. This is like the longest headline title of an article ever. A tense internal meeting between Google CEO Sundar Pichai and employees went sideways as execs addressed rumors about the company's China plans. So that's actually the headline. You would never see that in the New York Times or in a print, print piece. <laughs> this is uh, Greg Sandoval is the article or author. And a couple of things that are pretty fascinating about this. So this is an internal meeting. And as I think we talked about on the show a while back, there was a petition that Google employees circulated a while back protesting Google contracting with the Pentagon and using artificial intelligence, machine learning and visual recognition, face recognition technology, et cetera, um, you know, for, for military. And, and so the degree to which that's had an impact on, you know, the actual contracts and on uh, Google's work, I'm not sure. But it does speak to how we have Silicon Valley uh, engineers and, and others speaking out on ethics. Um, but this article, uh, somebody was actually live tweeting the article or the, the meeting. And so it says... Uh, the sources said images of, con of this, okay, Congress tweets. Okay. 
The discussions became tense when Google's leaders discovered that someone attending the meeting or listening in remotely was supplying live information to Conger, a Times reporter. Friend said he would not continue discussing China because of the leaks, according to sources who spoke with Business Insider. So, again, in terms of social media and its impact and the ways in which it comes into the workplace, you know, here's Google and they've got employees at a meeting, you know, live tweeting and, and sharing stuff out. And so basically the meeting is, uh, you know, broken up and, and it says it's unusual at Google for someone to live tweet an all hands meeting. Um, but his tweets were being, yeah, displayed on a large screen in the room that Pachai and Bryn were, were, were speaking at. And there was a pretty obscene interaction that the person was asking that, that person to leave. And anyway, pretty wild. So I, I, I uh, think it's fascinating that Google left China essentially um, they started with their, you know, slogan, uh, don't be evil. And they formally stepped away from that. Um, not to say that they're being evil. Um, but, uh, I don't know, perhaps that's too broad of an umbrella of, of for a, of a policy for a company to be able to, to, to stand up to. But ev- evidently for some of the things that I've listened to and read, hacking had a huge amount to do with why they were leaving, you know, the state sponsored, um, hacking and theft of intellectual property and uh, things that, that Google had, you know, within China. And then there was the whole thing about, are you going to compromise, you know, your, uh, you know, your values when it comes to search and things like that. So I don't know. It makes me think about how important it is to study Chinese again, how China is an ascendant, ascendant world power and how, um, you know, as a country and as, as individuals, we need, we need to be taking a long view as well as a short view of all of this and, you know, the arc of history. Um, you know, will China be able to, in- to innovate? They're spending billions and billions of dollars to try to come up with, you know, innovations that are not simply going to be manufactured in China, but are going to be distributed worldwide and they're going to be able to accrue royalties for. And so anyway, my head just spins with, <laughs> all kinds of implications there. And it, it honestly makes me want to travel back. I haven't, I haven't been back to China. The first time I went there was in 2007 and I don't think I've been back since 2011, but it is just, it's so stunning. And it was for me to be there, um, you know, in these megapolises of millions and millions of people and to, and to see and experience in person, you know, what you will read about in terms of the transition from, uh, from agrarian to urban and just all of these people. And so the, anyway, these are, these are big moves, right? Apple and China, you know, moving in there and, um, looking at the ways in which the internet is going to continue to evolve, right? The internet of 2018 is not the internet, uh, of course, of, of 1995 and 1996, um, when I remember, you know, pretty much first getting online, um, and, and so it's going to be important, I think, for us to stand up for our values and to find ways to to be able to advocate for, for things. Even uh, in the article, it talks about just war theory and how China and Russia want to stop uh, the right of self-defense for cyber attack. Right. They don't want to have international law, you know, condone a self-defensive move because of cyber attack. But, you know, cyber offensive uh, tactics are going to be every bit as important as whatever there's are terms for physical ballistic, you know, analog stuff. And so I think we, we perhaps may even see more cyber 
uh, in international politics. Then we see, you know, troops being deployed across borders because of deniability and all kinds of obfuscation that can happen when it comes to to that kind of thing. So are you, are you, do you guys teach Chinese in the digital academy and are there Montana, you know, students that are kind of on that road of saying, Hey, let's learn Chinese so we can participate at that level in the global economy. Sure. Um, so we teach it via a Confucius Institute relationship and Confucius Institute is a uh, Chinese government program that sends uh, teachers and scholars to the United States to teach Chinese language uh, programs to high school and university students. And so we have a cooperative agreement with the Confucius Institute uh, to teach Chinese classes um, in uh, through the Digital Academy across the state of Montana. Um, I, we actually have a lot of, of, of campus uh, associations in uh, the University of Montana where my offices are located at uh, with uh, various institutions in China. We have a, an educational leadership uh, a process where we bring in teachers and administrators from China every summer for workshops. Um, we send faculty to China pretty regularly. And uh, we also have uh, the Mansfield Institute, named after Mike Mansfield, former uh, Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield from Montana, who was very interested in, in uh, broadly the Asian question and was an ambassador there for a bit. But he is a or to a country there uh, uh, during his career. But the um, uh, a lot of the focus at the uh, Mansfield has been Japan and then with an increasing focus on China in the last couple of years. And then Montana, um, uh, actually, former Montana senator was the ambassador um, uh, to, and now and I'm, I'm, I'm citing facts that I have only 80% of it in my head. And I can't remember if Max Bacchus was the ambassador to China or Japan. But the, the point being that it is a... Um, um, it's something that we have a lot of, of association with, but I'm reminded of a story that a member of the University of Montana faculty told me about, you mentioned these huge metropolises and there are hundreds of cities uh, that are large, 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 large urban areas across uh, China. Uh, and she was talking about uh, making a visit there as part of, of, of uh, her, her professor duties at the University of Montana. And she was brought into um, a university that had been recently established in a, a city, and it was a city that you wouldn't recognize the name of if you heard it, unless you knew a lot about uh, uh, geography, but it was 1.6 million people in the city, and this was a brand new university, and it hadn't opened yet. It was still a few years away from having the faculty they needed to open it as a university. And imagine for a moment a brand new college campus that looked like a college campus, right? It was an urban college campus, so lots of high-rise buildings, but you have some parking lots and some parks integrated and some uh, a student areas and obviously large classroom buildings without a soul on it. Right. There was just nobody there. She had administrative uh, uh, meetings in one of the buildings where a campus administration had a small existence. But like I I'm very interested in, in kind of seeing that process as well. And, and Wes, I remember seeing pictures. I think you took a super fast train, if I remember correctly, uh, for at least one of those trips. And, you know, that that's a very interesting piece to me. And, um, you know, uh, China, we, we hear less about it because I think uh, President Trump is less interested 
in China as an adversary on the cultural side than he is on the economic side, right? So we don't hear a lot about the kind of more interesting pieces to this to me about, you know, comparative systems. Um, China's very interested in the United States university system because we are still maintain, I think, world leadership in uh, people wanting to come to the United States to get college degrees. Um, but it is obviously extremely fascinating that there seems to be a kind of a war for the internet going on and that it, it it's obviously uh, like it doesn't seem to be in the headlines, right? And even this particular article, um, foreign affairs is not a mainstream, um, you know, popular journal by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's a great place to cut debate cards, I might add, uh, uh, as Wes could probably tell you from his days as as a, a debater. But uh, you know, like it's it's this is still something in the esoteric academia of the world as opposed to the mainstream. And yet, I I agree. I think we need a much more aggressive focus. Um, uh, on, on thinking about this strategically, not just as, as, you know, us versus them, but what does this mean to all of us together? And here's one more thought, you know, from the educational lens is we've got to emphasize creativity and curiosity and open-ended exploration, you know, passion projects, um, because China, in my experiences being there, and then this is stuff you read about as well, I mean, it can really personify the idea of a factory model of education, right? You know, kids sitting in rows, you know, very didactic delivery by the instructor, memorization and high pressure, uh, traditional, um, you know, learn the information, uh, banking model, to quote Brazilian educator uh, Paulo Freire, you know, not not a, a great crucible for the, the creative imagination. And so when it comes to technology and AI and even being assisted with AI, you know, the United States educational system, our society, our university system, um, you know, and of course we can't give our university system credit for, for Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, right? But lots and lots of innovation and creativity coming out of our country. And so there's a unique mix that, and, and dynamics that are happening here. And so in that state controlled society, it was just fascinating on one of the trips when we were in, in China because what the, one of the international schools that we were connected to, they were doing some service learning where their students were going out to some Chinese schools and their high school students were helping some of their younger students. And the thing I remember is they talked about trying to do art and then trying to just help them do creative drawing. And the students were so conditioned to copy and to replicate and to simply receive and do that many of them were, were like frozen with, with an inability to produce original artistic work because they, and this, these are like, you know, elementary kids. So I'm imagining like third or fourth grade. And so anyway, China has a, has a, a long road to go. And I think that as educators, we need to, to take up the flag and the torch of imagination and creativity and innovation and to find ways to bring that into our classrooms and encourage students to, you know, creatively represent the curriculum and interpret the curriculum into, you know, 
um, develop those skills because that really is going to continue to be such an important part of the future. And you could even argue strategically, you know, just like when Sputnik came and, oh, the Russians and we got to, you know, go hard on, on science and math. Well, you know, we need to go really strong on, on creativity and the arts. And, and it's not just arts as far as fine arts as we've traditionally thought about them, but creative coding and the creative application of data analytics skills to problems and all these sorts of things. So anyway, that's a bit of my rant, but all of those things will go through your head perhaps and more uh, if you have a chance to, to uh, read that foreign affairs article. So we always say at the end of the show, reach out to us. I'd love to hear what other folks are thinking about that, that article and the kinds of uh, implications that you think that should have for us in the classroom. Cause this is an example of an article that like Jason said, it's not mainstream, you know, us news and world report time, CNN, Fox, but I feel like we're peering into the palantir, right? The crystal ball of the future. And so as we peer into it and try to think, okay, if we see some of this future coming, you know, what does it mean for, for us today as we work with kids and teachers in school? Absolutely the case. Well, Wes, where is there anything else we need to hit before we geek of the week it? Uh, let's see. Um, well, this is actually a, a crummy article uh, website called the new Atlas because you can't view it with your ad blocker on. And uh, that's probably a warning. Um, but this is from the new Atlas on, on August 13th, the right to disconnect the new laws banning after hours work email. Um, and I tweeted a couple things from this. This is the, the most amazing one. This is from, I think it's Daimler uh, who bought Chrysler. Um, but they said in 2014, the German automaker Daimler instituted an even more dramatic program, deleting all incoming emails to an individual when they are on holiday. The optional system is designed to send a reply to all incoming emails when the person is on holiday, notifying the sender they are not in the office and that the email will be deleted. The idea is that not only will a holiday be left disrupted, undisrupted, but the worker can confidently return to work without the looming stress of a packed inbox. And uh, at the risk of, you know, self-disclosure, at work, you know, I, I have not recovered from my email, from my email inbox from, from my summer vacation weeks. Um, I mean, it is just, it is sad. Uh, I'm going to be babbling to do that. So anyway, this article talks about a number of, uh, different proposed laws and then some actual changes to legislation, which are at, in some cases, like in Europe, wanting to clarify what the rules are that I think there's one that it references where it says, you know, it's, it can't be a violation of the work contract when someone does, you know, re refuses or fails to be available after hours for email. Um, and so it talks about, you know, France, uh, working on this and, and Germany as well. So pretty interesting. So Jason, how would that fly for you at the digital Academy? If we suddenly said no after school work email or holiday email? <laughs> well, it, it's <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine explaining that to the boss. Like, here's the deal. It's five o'clock. So, um, so this reminds me of, there's a really great author who, I, I, I hesitate sometimes to recommend him because he is to the extreme on everything. His name is Tim Ferriss. He wrote a really great book a couple of years ago called The 20-Hour Work... I'm sorry, The 5-Hour Work Week. And he's an entrepreneur times 10. He also got a, does a great podcast. And it, it's... it's uh, um, I, I sometimes hesitate to recommend him because he is quite extreme. Um, for example, he talks about the 80-20 rule, you know, that 80% of, of your time is taken up by 20% of the people. 
and and he recommends cutting those relationships off, right? Like he and he and it's a strategy in business: get rid of the people that suck up your time and focus your 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 attention on the people that don't suck up your time. And I laugh at that advice because you know, again, he recommends it with family relationships too. And I'm thinking, you know, what does that look like? Like, mom, here's the deal: I love you, but you're really just sucking up too much time. I apologize, but um, he has that exact strategy. He puts it out of office on that says basically, hey, I'm on vacation. I will delete every email the minute I get back. So if it's still an issue after January 2019, when I return from vacation, you should email me again. And to be honest, that uh, that's not quite what my out of office says when I'm, um, I'm gone, but it's pretty close. I say forward any immediate concern um, you know, to the help desk, uh, the MTD help desk, of which, you know, when I'm in the office, I answer, you know, 40% of those tickets anyways, right? Um, or contact me upon my return if this issue remains an issue. And that allows me to ignore, you know, a lot of the, you know, temporary things, you know, the website doesn't work, my kid's password, da, 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 da. And I do think that, you know, because, uh, we can be connected 24 seven. We are connected 24 seven and people aren't very good at drawing lines. We mentioned Apple earlier, uh, tonight and, and kind of the famous editing that Steve Jobs used to do. Um, I can't remember which member of the Apple team was like this, but, uh, when they used to do Sunday night, um, uh, reviews for Monday meetings to pitch things to Mr. Jobs. Um, Scott Forsall, uh, is that his name or is that a Trump per- Like, I don't know. It's, uh, Scott no, Forsall. Like- yeah, he's an Apple engineer. Yeah. Okay. Our, our Apple well, I think it was him that was really into the Sopranos 10 years ago, right? And they knew from 8 to 9 p.m. on Sundays that they would receive no emails or text messages because he'd be watching the Sopranos. That's just no way to work right? Like that's not the way we should set things up. And so I think drawing lines is super important and I'm all for a law there is probably not the right thing, right? Like it seems like we we could do better than that, but yeah, we do need to, to back off the email a bit. And, um, you know, and I will recognize, or I do recognize that I sometimes, uh, spend too much time, you know, checking email, looking at email, uh, dealing with email when, that's not always necessary to do so. So I'm all for it. I think this kind of balance piece really does need to be a part of the grander discussions here. Shout out to Simon Miller in the chat room who says this seems like an expectation we can establish and control. And, and perhaps it is. Um, I, uh, I'm not thinking of, of the, the book reference. We'll have to come up with it later, but just this whole idea that we, we establish boundaries when we are able to say no, when we choose to say no and how important that is. And, you know, we, we shouldn't just basically be, you know, pushovers. Um, obviously we've got to do things that we're directed to do, but it, it doesn't mean that, you know, we need to, to be staying up all hours answering our email and <clears throat> we don't see employers and the culture writ large imposing those kinds of healthy life work uh, boundaries. And so it really is incumbent upon us as individuals work, whatever job we happen to be in to, uh, you know, decide what those are. And, uh, it's some, sometimes easier to come into a new job and establish those than it is to try to, you know, impose those or put those in place when they, when they haven't been. But anyway, good stuff. Well, it is the top of the hour. Shall we geek of the week it to wrap it up? Yes, I'll, I'll go a quick one first. I'm reminding this because I, I travel, um, I travel with a, um, I, I, I'm always trying to travel lighter. It's, it's a fool's game because, uh, I tend, I'm, I'm kind of a chronic overpacker, but I'm getting better. 
um, in, in my more advanced travel days. But I am traveling with a, 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 a carry-on bag. But I, I have a tech pack that I carry with me that's chargers and such that goes in my suitcase. Obviously, I have the ones that are in my, my daily carry pack as well. But um, I have uh, changed strategies. I used to carry with me, actually, and I still do, and I need to probably scale this piece back. I used to carry Chromecast with me to plug into hotel televisions that allowed me to stream my phone to it. And I actually had it set up with my phone wire, my phone hotspot, so it was kind of hacked up there. But I've actually changed strategies. This is uh, probably a three-year-old app or i'm sorry uh fire stick this is the amazon fire stick that oftentimes go on sale for well below 30 dollars. but the cool thing about the fire stick is that it allows you to use a um uh like if the hotel internet has a login page you can use the fire stick uh to get past that like it will bring up a virtual keyboard on the screen type a room number in or perhaps buy enhanced internet whatever that looks like which is it's something you can't do on the Chromecast. And so it 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 fits really easily in my tech pack. Uh, you know, it, it, it hooks up via uh, HDM, uh, HDMI, and then I have a little HDMI extender I carry with me. And so when I want my Netflix, my Hulu, um, my Plex, which I have a home Plex server that serves up uh, copies of my own personal media, um, the Fire TV stick is pretty great uh, and cheap too. You could probably buy a used one on Amazon for for uh, uh, next to nothing, and uh, I just plug it in using my phone charger, and then I have a really great uh, kind of TV experience, so I don't have to you know suffer with cable. Awesome, and I'll violate the rules of Geek of the Week again by giving you multiple things, but these are all pretty good. Quick one: treat your passwords like your underwear. That means never share them with anyone, change them regularly, and keep them off your desk. That's good. Uh, great free course I signed up for, sponsored by the Knight Foundation, How to Launch and Grow a Hit Podcast. It's a five-week course. They're publishing a different video each week. Uh, the first one just came out. Um, well, this is the first week. So check it out, and it looks like a great community and definitely some great you know, new podcasts. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this, Jason, so you and I can retire and just podcast on Wednesday nights. I think Montana sounds like a great place for retirement. So. <laughs> uh, last thing is Safe Search, a free browser extension. And I'll also put this article um, into it. Uh, this is from Wired on my birthday, August 20th. Uh, this browser extension is like an antivirus for fake photos. And so this is pretty cool. I would expect these kinds of tools to now or to start being baked into Facebook and to Twitter. Uh, but right now this is a browser extension. And so when you mouse over a photo, when you install the extension, you actually indicate what your trusted news sources are. So for instance, if you want to pick Fox News and Breitbart, which I didn't, you know, you can say those are trusted news. There's a whole lot of other, you know, choices that you can, that you can have there, but it will, it will, um, you know, compare databases and indicate if a photo has been doctored and photoshopped, if it's a known meme. Um, and then it'll also allow you to submit if, uh, you suspect or know, um, you know, verified something like that is, um, you know, not, not accurate. So I think those kind of tools are really important. We're all publishers now and we're going to move into another election season soon. It's just going to continue in terms of the ongoing fight for our attention and to uh, see what we're going to not only look at and click on, but what we're going to believe and what we're going to act on in terms of uh, voting at the ballot box and, you know, other kinds of decisions. All right. So, West Fryer, speedofcreativity.org. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to be happy. We had first day of classes with, uh, kids back today and it's the silly season. And, 
yeah, my network admin uh, had his last day Friday, so I'm the one-legged man at the three-legged race for a couple weeks. Hop along, Friar. And my name is Jason Neifer, uh, Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter, blog.ncc.org. I'm the uh, Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence for the Northwest Council of Community Education. Say that 10 times fast. And um, mostly mostly I tweet uh, uh, when it comes to social media. This whole action here, though, has nothing to do with Twitter. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast that talks about uh, news through an educational technology lens. More of a philosophical night tonight, but that's quite okay. Uh, coming up in, in, in future weeks, Wes and I are planning, mostly in our heads right now, a Chromebook show. We're going to talk a little bit about the merits of a Chromebook. I'm, a, again, excited to, to report that my Pixelbook is my primary driver now and accompanied me on this trip this evening and um, look forward to talking about that in a future episode. Uh, this broadcast live every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, 3 a.m. UTC for those of you that happen to be across the pond. And of course, it's available after the fact on our YouTube channel, EdTechSR, or our website, EdTechSR.com, or you can always find it wherever finer podcasts are also featured. And so we hope to see you either live in a future episode or after the fact in a podcast. We hope you have a great week and we'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room.